I need you to go to the book of Job. We're in the book of Job. We're in a series in the book of Job. And I heard and I listened to Pastor Robert's message last week about the sovereignty of God. In fact, I watched y'all's service last week. I got to see Jamie get up and do the uh, announcements, which was great. I said, this is amazing. So would you stand to your feet? Job chapter 2 is where I'm going to start. Job chapter 2. I've got thoughts that I just, I, I have to share with you. I have to bring these thoughts to you. And I love the thoughts about the sovereignty of God last week. And I want to open your heart tonight, to this morning, to, to uh, just a, a fresh thought. I would argue there's probably no book of the Bible, I think, has been more mishandled, misinterpreted, and misapplied than the book of Job. I'm supremely concerned that we have taken the book of Job and we have somehow used it to do what it was never meant to do and used the misinterpretations of this book to do a disservice and a twisting of other scriptures and other parts of the Bible. And so we're about to find this guy, Job, that's suffering in unspeakable ways. And I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 4. He's losing uh, everything just about is what it seems like. And Satan says, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his, his flesh and bones, and he'll surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery, scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Here's some advice. Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this Job did not sin in what he said. <laughs> we might use the word John said, yet. Because if you read the rest of this book, you're about to find out Job's mouth is about to run pretty freely. But I'm going to pray that God's going to speak to us in a miraculous way. God help. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Go ahead and have a high five, seat, sit down, and let's talk about suffering, and let's talk about this problem of pain. A few things seem to pull out the worst in us like, like suffering does. A few things have revealed the absolute lack of endurance and perseverance of the church as the pandemic has. The pandemic has revealed the utter inability of most Christians to suffer anywhere, even within a first world context. Like I feel, I, I feel like I'm suffering when people say evil things about me after I'm preaching or if someone posts something online or when, when people that do not know Jesus act like they don't know Jesus, I will often t feel like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm suffering so badly. Or when I turn on television and I watch the way that Christians are portrayed, which surprise, surprise is often not the way I, I'm like, what Christians are you talking to? You know, like, who are these Christians that they are? And yet I have to tell you, there's something supremely worrisome about a people that do not know how to suffer. In history, the cultures that have made it have been the cultures where, in fact, they've said it sometimes, the armies that have historically won were the armies that could fight for five more minutes than the other, time, the other team, the other side. So there's a side of us on, on something like a Veterans Day that kind of reminds us, okay, wait a minute, what is it that's going on? But the problem of pain hits us when pain especially seems to be senseless. You know, if you've ever been to Israel, if you've been to the Holocaust Museum in, in New York City, 
There is a real sense in which many people have said, one of the people that was describing this said, the executioner killed for nothing. The victim died for nothing. At Auschwitz, the sacrifices were for nothing. They were without point. If the suffering of one human being has any meaning, the suffering of six million has none. What do you do when, when you're looking at the problem of pain and it seems to be, and here's the problem, you, you know, Caleb was talking about she, she's pregnant. Morning sickness is bearable because you know there's a, a precious promise that's coming. It's hard to endure morning sickness when you're not pregnant. It's, it's hard to endure pain when you see no point in it. When, when pain seems pointless, it, it's, it's a real issue. And that's what the book of Job absolutely, positively does for us. The most ancient book of the Bible starts with a couple chapters of prose, followed by a couple, you know, actually 30-something chapters of poetry, and then we've got a little epilogue at the end of some more prose. It's, it's one of these books that commentators are very confused about. They don't know if it's one book or one, one guy, Job, who writes the, the first couple chapters, because Job seems pretty godly here. If you read the rest of the book of godly, he does, rest of the book, he doesn't seem as godly. So a lot of commentators are like, ah, eh, chapter three and on, that's actually a, set, it's a different Job. It's another guy named Job. All that to say, uh, I don't think so, because I've never had anybody in our churches ever say something like, I'm pregnant, we're naming our child Job. No one's interested in that name. The name's become a byword for suffering and meaningless and, and purposelessness. No, you've never met someone named Job Smith. There's no Job's running around. They're just not there. And so when we come to this, when, when we look at our pain, it, it doesn't make sense when you're like, man, wh- why, why did I get hit by a car? And why did my marriage fall apart? Or, or why are little children suffering? Or why does God allow? Isn't that the line, by the way? Why did God let? My uncle do those things to me. Why did God let my husband lose his mind? Why did God allow these natural disasters? And so what we have here is we have this book that's wildly misunderstood. I'm going to try to make a point that I brought to our group in, in, in Gainesville that I, I feel like you, you, we have to say this at the beginning of this series in Job, which is this. You are going to be troubled with things that you do not understand. That is going to happen in this life. The book of Job is not going to give clean-cut answers. It's just not going to. But when you are troubled, afflicted, or tormented with things that you do not understand, you must hold tight to what you do. I'm going to say it again, that when you are troubled, when you are afflicted, when you are confused, when you are wondering, when you are doubting because of things that you do not understand, why? The pain is unbearable. I see no point. When you're troubled with the things that you do not understand, hold tight to what you do. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Job, go back to Job chapter 1, and I want us to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So in Job chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. He was blameless and upright, feared God, and shunned evil. So what we find out with the narrator who's speaking from the omniscient point of view, Job is a godly, godly man. There are none righteous, no, not one. We know that. But this man is upright before God. He's not perfect, but he is the greatest man probably living on the earth at this time, probably the time of the patriarchs. He's not a Jew. He's not a Hebrew. He's living in a land that's probably in the, in the area of like Oman and Yemen, something like that is where this would have been if he was an actual person. Some people don't even think he was a, a, someone that actually existed. I tend to think that he did exist based on things that we read in other parts of scripture. But it says that he was good. Verse two, he had seven sons, three daughters. He owned seven 
7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. Now that's just the Old Testament way of saying the dude is like, he's like Elon Musk, okay? He is, you know, I, I know we don't really measure success like this now. Like no one says, whoa, how many kids do you have? Oh, seven sons and three daughters. Like, ooh, you know, I've, I, in the, I've got eight children. I don't go anywhere and tell people I have eight kids. They're like, ooh, you are prospered and blessed by the Lord. When I tell people I have eight kids, they're always like, are you crazy? You must really like kids. I'm like, no, I really like my wife. That's how you get your kids, all right? So this was talk in the ancient world for prosperity. If you've got 10 children running around, all these oxen, all these camels, the dude is prospering, which is fitting into the narrative that everybody expects, which is, if you're good, you'll be blessed. If you're good, you will prosper. Now, what we find here, and the reason this is so important is, uh, even as I've read a lot of the, I mean, I've read more commentators on this book than I ever have on any book I've ever done. When we're reading this, we're about to find out that things are about to, to go weird. It's, it's going to say something about his sons. There are, there's a stream of thought that says that Job is about to suffer in unprecedented ways because Job did some things that were wrong. Now, I'm about to try to come against that, but let me just prepare you for it. In verse 4, it says, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays. They would invite their three sisters to drink with them when a period of feasting had run its course probably multiple days, feasting multiple days, drinking. They're probably partying, which it, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Why was he making arrangements for them to be purified? Because they've been partying hard. Okay, they've been, you know, I don't know what kind of opium they're smoking. I don't know what kind of opium you ever smoked. And I don't know what they were doing exactly in, the, in their day. It says, early in the morning, he would make sacrifices and a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now, I worry about a lot of things for my kids. I never worry that my kids are like cursing God. But apparently these kids, they have birth, by, incidentally, guess who was not invited to the birthday parties of these seven sons? The godliest man on the planet. The person that's not invited to their party is Job, which means it's probably an indicator. His sons and daughters probably aren't very godly. You already heard what his wife said. She's obviously not very godly. Chapter 3, verse 25, it says, What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. So there's a line of thought in commentators and preachers alike that would say, Job is about to suffer because he feared, and whatever you fear, when you fear, you open a door. And he didn't raise his kids right, and when you don't raise your kids right, you open a door. And he didn't lead his wife right, and when you don't lead, lead your wife right, you're opening a door. All I got to say is this. The scripture already tells us God's assessment of Job, which was he was godly. He was upright. Here's what you need to know. Job is not suffering because of what he did wrong. Job is suffering because of what he did right. You need to know that because when you suffer, there is going to be an accuser of your soul that is going to try to convince you that the reason you are suffering is because what did I do to? Have you ever heard that voice? Now, this is a big deal because I'm not saying Job is perfect. I'm not in favor of living in fear. But I'm, can we give the guy a break? This is, do you know what Job did not have that you and me have? The book of Job. And the book of Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Psalms and Proverbs. Yes, I do know raise up a child in the way that you, the point of the book of Job is not, come on, parents, raise your kids and not be druggies. That's a good application. That's just not the point of this book. The point of the book of Job is not, husbands, come on, man. Don't make your wife be a God curser. Marry the right woman. This is not a, this is not a, a book that's about get the right woman. 
This is a book about the greatest man on the earth that is suffering in inexplicable ways that makes no sense. But we're about to find out that there is a a voice of accusation that is going to come, and it's going to come your way as well. And even right now, I want to break the power of the accuser over your life in Guyana and over your life online and over your life and your life. In Jesus' name, may accusations be broken. Amen? We, We need to, by the way, we've got to stop joining in with the accuser of the brethren. You don't know why some, if you see someone suffering, if there's a little part of you, it's like, well, they probably did something too. Oh, shut your mouth. I'm telling you, keep it shut. You're like, I've been, I've been keeping my mouth shut. We're about to find out from Job's friends. They go and they sit with him for seven straight days and they say nothing. That's pretty good self-control. But when they open their mouth, all I got to tell you is this. When people are suffering, just shut your mouth and love them. But what if they deserve it? You don't know what they deserve and what they don't deserve because all you can see is what's on the outside. And one of the points of this very book, in my opinion, is that you don't see everything going on down here. Only God does. See, you and me have something Job didn't have. We got the book of Job. And we've got the Holy Bible. And it's very good news. Verse 6, it says that, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also with them. And the Lord said to Satan... Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. So apparently the angels, and there are good angels that like protect us, and then there were the fallen angels. Apparently they came and had to give a a presentation, an an accounting as well before God. And this is almost like a court scene of sorts. And he says, where are you coming from? And and in Hebrew, it's the Satan. It's the Satan. It's, It's the accuser. It's a word that means the adversary or the accuser, okay? The Satan, okay? In fact, some commentators and some versions don't even use a name Satan. They use the title, the Satan. I almost prefer that because it's letting you know the role that he's playing. The Satan comes, and the Satan, the accuser, the adversary comes and says, I've been coming and I've been roaming. Now, I'm trying to set you up for something. Because in verse 8, I'm about to read the verse that, in my opinion, is the most troubling verse of the entire book of Job, that is the linchpin of the entire book, that if you get this verse wrong, you're going to get the whole book wrong. Because this is the verse, the one I'm about, I haven't read it yet, but the one I'm about to read is the verse that makes so many people, when they're suffering, they, there's, a, there's an angst in their heart and there's a bitterness of soul that we have against God because of these words. The Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. And then the Satan says, does, God fear, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him in his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand, God. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And he will surely curse you to his face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself you may not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, I I, want to make something really, really clear here. Because what I have heard people say is that God initiates what's about to take place, which is the unraveling of Job's life, and says, Have you considered my iPhone? 
Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. Have you thought about him? And Satan's like, well, well, no. Well, why don't you do a little something, something to Job? To, I'm just in the mood to win a bet against you because I'm going to use Job as the ex, at the expense of, of my ego. I'm going to use Job to, to prove a point. Now, that is how many people have said, God, why are you doing Because I hear people say this. I talked to a lady out in one of the neighborhoods we ministered to, and, and she'd gotten pregnant, and she's like, man, and she, you know, unmarried woman, she's like, oh, why would God do this to me? I'm like, I don't think you had sex with God. But in her mind, she was like, why would God do this? And I, and I, I hear people all the time, they get cancer, God, why are you doing this to me? Or they lose their job, God, why are you doing this to me? Have you considered my servant? Now, it's, it's very interesting, because what, we, again, I'm, I'm going to say this again, we feel like pawns in a cruel chess match because we've misread the scriptures. And we, when it comes to Job, it's almost like we get amnesia from the rest of the book of the, rest of the Bible. First Peter chapter 5 says this. Be on guard, be sober. Do you have that scripture? Be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, your enemy, I'm going to say it again. Your enemy, this is where I'm going with this whole sermon. You have an enemy and his name is not God. This is so massive. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or one version says, seeking whom he may devour. So let's go, let's go back to Job. Let's read Job the way it's being written. Satan's been roaming the earth. Now, if all you have is the book of Job, you wouldn't know what we know from 1 Peter. And if all you had was Job's life, you wouldn't even know the book of Job. You would think all there is is life, and then there's God. You don't know who to blame other than God or you. And so if, it's, if you know you haven't done something wrong, then you got to blame it on God. And, but we know from the New Testament, we have an enemy. What's his name? What's, what's your enemy's name? It is not God, okay? He roams looking for someone to devour. Satan is the one that starts this. He comes, and when he comes before God, God says, have you considered my servant Job? The word considered is a Hebrew word. It's got a root word, sum. It's a compound word that means to set your mind. He says to the one that's already been roaming, that's been looking all over the earth, he's been going everywhere, and God says to Satan, you have set your mind on my servant Job, haven't you? Now, I'm telling you guys, the way that you read this verse, if you just think God's just out of the blue like Satan had no idea, it's like, whoa, I never thought of an iPhone until, until God showed me one. No, Satan, why is he going and attacking Job and not other people? And the answer is because if Satan, if the Satan can take down Job, the most righteous man on the earth, that we're going to find out in the rest, rest of the book of Job, this man helps the poor, this man lifts up the orphans, this man helps the widows, this man does justice, this guy stands on defense of people, and this guy is godly. If, he can, if, if the Satan can get Job to fall, the ripple effects will be dramatic. That's why Satan's attacking him. And the reason Satan's attacking some of you is because there's something about your life that is favored by God. And there's something about you that is more important than you even know that you are. There is something about you where the image of God and the calling of God and the favor of God and the goodness of God is on your life. And you're like, why is this happening to me? And guys, I know this sounds horrible, but the favor of God means the anger of your enemy.
when you're troubled with the things that you don't understand, and you will be, and you're going to say, what did I do to deserve this? It's not what you did to deserve this. It's who you are and who he is and who he is, and he is not your enemy. But Job did not have a view that you and I have, which the book of Job is giving us, is when you are suffering, there are things that you do not see. I, I hear people say, man, God's made this wager and he's doing this to me. Friends, this is not God that's initiating this. Job's children, he's got 10 of them. They're grown children. There probably was a hedge of protection around them since childhood. They're probably, they tell us, commentators tell us that Job, we're going to know he lives 140 years after this, that he probably lives somewhere between, they say, you know, 200 and 250 years. This is back in those times. That's how long Job's living. His time of testing lasts somewhere between a month and nine months. You know, one to nine months is, is how long his period of testing. And what's, what's interesting is that when we come to this book of Job, we, we look at this and people say, well, I would never want to even have the name Job. See, what we don't understand is the name Job has even become a byword because we've so misinterpreted and understood this book. But here's the catch in verse 8. In verse 9, Satan says, does Job God fear you for nothing? Haven't you put a hedge around him? Let me translate this. The only reason you follow Jesus is because you got raised in a Christian home. The only reason you follow Jesus is because it's easy to follow Jesus. The only reason Job is serving you is because you have blessed him. Like, there is a direct correlation. Because you've blessed him, of course he's going to. But let me, let me get clear, God. God, Job does not serve you because you're beautiful. Job serves you because you're useful. I, I loved this conversation recently with someone from our church, a young lady, that someone came up to her and said, well, of course he's dead. How long have you guys been dating? Three years. Well, of course he's still with you. He's been getting it. He's not, he doesn't, he's not with you for you. He's with you for it. Which she said, okay, well, uh, the joke's on you then because he ain't gotten it from me. And they're like, wait, you've been dating for three years and he hasn't gotten it? And she's like, guess what? He doesn't love, he's not with me for it. He's with me for me. There's something about this little wager that Satan wants because Satan is convinced that Job serves God because God is useful. Job, Job is using God to get it. That's what he's doing, right? That Job is, is using him because God provides what a, what a person wants. He, what, what God is about to tell him is, I need you to understand something. I know Job, and Job knows me. It's a beautiful thing that happens because we're about to read this, this little thing when, when Job is walking through this down here in verse, like all these things are going to happen. He's about to use the name of God. He's going to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of, and he's going to use the name Yahweh. Interestingly, that he's going to drop this. He doesn't have a ton of revelation. The word has said only shows up in the book of Job three times. There's not very much revelation. He doesn't have what you and me have. We got the book of Job. We got the Bible. All he's got is this relationship with God, but that little bit of relationship that he's got with God, he's going to come and God's going to say, he's going to say, I believe Job loves me for me. Now I need you to understand this. There is a part of this story that I do not understand. I do not understand why God allows the devil to do some things that the devil, is allowed, the devil is allowed to do. What I can tell you is this, and I can promise you this. God only allows the devil to do as much as going to thwart the very purposes of the devil himself. God does not allow the devil in your life to come and do things for you to fall. Like he will allow, he allows this to come. He knows what Satan doesn't know, which is the end from the beginning. And he knows Job loves me for me. 
Now, there's a danger here, church. Amen. There's a danger here because godliness is profitable. Timothy says godliness is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There's a danger. If you start tithing, I'm, I'll, I don't preach on tithing a lot. I'll just tell you, if you tithe, it, it does happen. God blesses you. If you're kind to people, God does bless you. If, if you do your business in honest ways, there is a blessing that comes with that. It's not always a, it happened as quick as you want. What I'm telling you is godliness, purity, righteousness, it kind of works. Until it doesn't. Because sometimes God will allow it to seem like it's not working for a little while, that the genuineness of your faith might be tested for what it is. That does happen. And, and the question is, do you serve God because you love him, or do you serve God because he puts out good things? Do, do, you, do, you, serve, do, you, do you love him because he's beautiful, or do you love him because he's useful? When you come to church and, and they're singing, you know, Zach gets up or he's leading a song, when, it's, it's easy to worship when they're singing your jam. Oh, that's my jam. I love that. Oh, that, that rocks my world. It's great if it rocks your world. The question is, does it rock his world? Because worship's not for you, it's for him. There's a, really, there's a little bit of a danger when we, when we, like, you watch a Beyonce concert or an Adele concert, and you, and you see people worshiping. You're like, whoa. I mean, a lot of those, they just look like normal, non-denominational, charismatic churches, just like anything else. Like, whoa, well, well, who are they worshiping? Well, a lot of people just get into their emotions. My question is, can you worship the Lord with fervency even when you don't like the song? Because the theology is right. Because the words are good. We're like, ah, I don't. And Because some of us do. We like cross our arms to let Zach know, hey, move on to another song and don't do this one again. <laughs> I need you doing some Mav City right now. That's what I need to hear, okay? I, I need some Dante Bow. Well, we'll pause Dante Bow, But in a little while, we, we want some Dante Bow again, you know? So, like, are you, do you worship when you're on, are you able to worship like this? One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting, and this is one of the points people make, see, you open a door for the devil, and the devil's coming in. you got to shut those doors. Let me just say this. If the greatest men on the earth had opened doors, God knows I do. I am not standing because of how worthy I am. I'm standing because of how good Jesus is. <laughs> I believe in, go ahead, lock your doors, do all that kind of stuff. I remember last time I preached down here, actually, we drove back to Gainesville. We had been gone for like two weeks. We got back. All of our doors were left unlocked. <laughs> I got to tell you, my house was not robbed, not because I'm so diligent. Have any of you guys ever left any doors unlocked in your soul? How many of you know that the reason we stand is because of Jesus, right? So while they were eating and drinking, um, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys were grazing, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one that's escaped to tell you. By the way, I, I remember I had a college student ask me, but it, it seems like this is saying that like, whatever came down, it was the fire of God. I'm like, yeah, who's saying that? They said a servant. I'm like, you and me have information they did not have. Friends, this was not the fire of God. This was the fire of Satan. Jesus would get on boats. He would get ready to go cross over to the other side. There would be a storm. And when the storm came, he didn't go, oh, my gosh, I just submit to this. What did he do to that storm? 
He rebuked it because he, he knew this was not of God. I need you to understand that the fact that people call natural disasters acts of God is not because that's theological accuracy. It's because people have misconstrued the nature of our God. You have an enemy and his name is not God. His name is the devil. There is a the Satan. And while he was still speaking, the fire of God fell, and I'm the only one. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept your camels, made off with them, put your servants to the sword. I'm the only one left. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at your oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind came in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them. They're all dead. I'm the only one left here to tell you. And at this, Job got up, tore his robes, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship. Now, all he knows to say is the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I, I, I need you to understand, there are things we have ascribed to the Lord, the unglory that's actually due the devil. We need to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. There are things about the nature, because even when Satan comes and says, God, stretch out your hand, and he's like, no, no, no. Everything he has is in your hand. Satan even wants God to use, God, God uses his, to, and to which again, I, and I get it, everyone's like, well, if God's allowing it to happen, isn't that the same thing as, as it happening? And I'm, I'm going to try to make a very big case to say, absolutely not, that is not the case. Because where I'm going to go, and in, in, in even a lot of what I want you to understand from this very message, when you come to James chapter 5, actually, we'll, we'll go there in a second. Get, put your finger on James chapter 5, if you will. But when this happens, when things are not working out, I love Isaiah 54, where God says, listen, you guys are going through trials. I made the blacksmith. The blacksmith makes weapons but no weapon formed against you shall prosper because I'm with you. Now, guys, you got to catch this. this is, we're not watching Iron Man when, when Tony Stark gets hit by some bullets and says, oh, Stark Industries. I made the blacksmith. God says, I created the blacksmith. The blacksmith made weapons, but no weapon formed against you shall prosper. There, there is such a tendency to look at the weapons that have been formed and say, well, God, these are the weapons made by the blacksmith. God made the blacksmith. That means God allowed it to happen. God is sovereign. We heard last week, God is sovereign. And so if God is sovereign, God let it happen. So indirectly, God's the one that did it. See, but now you're talking like Job's wife. Now you're talking like someone that doesn't know the book of Job. Wait, Satan, you have set your mind on my servant, haven't you? I, I, I love, I've come to love this book, and I want to call us to not conflate what they do with who he is. You have an adversary. His name is not God. His name is the devil, and there will come a time when you are tested. And when you are tested, the purpose of the test is to find out, do you love God because he's beautiful, or do you love God because he's useful? That is part of the point of this test, okay? Part of the point, and this happens in marriage. We're in a culture right now where people get married. I did a wedding yesterday at Fort Lauderdale Beach, and they, get, they didn't do this yesterday, but people get up at altars, and they lie. And they say, I will love you for better or worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, but what they mean is, I will love you for better or better. And richer or richer. But if, if you get crazy, if my husband starts getting hormonal, if, if life starts to get hard, then I'm peacing out. Because in reality, it was conditional from the jump. 
But Job seems to have something that Satan does not understand. Job is unconditionally committed to God before he's even gotten a revelation of God's unconditional commitment to him. There is something glorious about when all the, all the accoutrements, all the benefits, all the bennies of the kingdom, and don't forget the benefits of the Lord, the Bible says. What about when all the benefits have been, and let's just say temporarily removed, will you still love God in that moment because God is beautiful. There is no one like Jesus. There is such a tendency to be like, wait a minute, God, I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can love you, but like, but because you feel like, and this is what you find in the book of Job, he's going to say, God, he even says this in this book. He said, God, if it's not you that's doing this to me, then who is it? That's a question in the book of Job, but we know the answer to that question. Friends, let me just say this. Your enemy is not God. Your enemy is the Satan, is the Satan. The Lord is your shepherd. The Lord is your fortress. The Lord is your deliverer. The Lord is your comforter. The Lord is your helper. The Lord is your shelter. The Lord is your strong tower. The Lord is the glory and the lifter of your head. That's who the Lord is. Let let me try to make this clear. I believe with all of my heart, the Satan, the accuser, has two agendas. One is to accuse you before God. And the other is to accuse God before you. It's his nature. By his nature, Jesus is the opposite of an accuser. He's a coverer. He covers people. He makes us look better than we are. Satan makes people look worse. He is the accuser, the twister. He's the one that does that. See, God allows these things to happen, to have the good things come out, but something glorious happens. If you ever saw the Grinch that stole Christmas, when the Grinch stole all the presents, and down there are the Whoville people, and they're down there at the bottom, and, and he's fully expecting that everyone's going to be sad, but they're not. Do you, anybody remember this? And what were they doing? They're, st- they're singing, and they're thankful because the Grinch has no gear to understand. Wait a minute. How can you celebrate Christmas when there are no presents to which they're like, oh, we don't love Christmas because it's just useful. We love it because it's beautiful. And there's something about when we love Jesus, not because he's always useful, because there are times when he will feel unuseful. And let me just be clear. There is no one more useful than Jesus. There is no one that heals like Jesus. There is no one that delivers like Jesus. There is no one that saves like Jesus. There is no one that lifts people up like Jesus. But when you're in the moments when you cannot feel that, there's got to be a way that you look and you see his beauty and you say, Jesus, I serve you because you're beautiful, because you're wonderful, because you are glorious. And when you get to the end of the book of Job, by the way, he's, he's going to have these friends that come and for many chapters are basically going to say, Job, you're suffering because you've sinned. And in 42.7, God says, After Job has repented, by the way, God says, I'm angry with you and your two friends, Eliphaz, because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. (laughs) You guys are dead. He says, ask Job to pray for you. Because everyone, Job's lost everything. And he says, if Job prays for you, you'll be saved. If not, you're dead meat. By the way, God is a vindicator, and there are some of you that have suffered, and you have been, some of you have been tormented by what other people think about you. Let me give you a word. God will vindicate. God's going to vindicate. Imagine what it's like that the man that's been, been broken and sores and, and infirmed and a dis, just a disgust 
They're like, you're all going to die unless Job, <laughs> unless Job prays for you. It's just so interesting what happens. But when you come over to the book of James, and let me just kind of break this down. In James chapter 5, it says, as you know, we count blessed those who have persevered. Persevere. Are you suffering right now? Persevere. Because you don't feel blessed. John said it earlier. You're not blessed yet. We count them blessed who have persevered. Watch this. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord has finally brought about. Now, let me just stop. Because there's all, I read all these commentators on Job, all these commentaries, and they differ with each other. One says this, and one says that, and one says this, and one says that. They have all these different, I'm just like, wait a minute, we have a commentary on the book of Job. It's actually this verse in the book of James. The Bible tells us what the Bible means. Look at this last line of James 5.11. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Lleno de compasión misericordia. Mike, why are you saying that? Because I keep meeting people that say, when they walk through these, I, I meet people that say, Mike, I'm, I'm just a Job. Well, congratulations. They're like, oh, I know. Sucks to be me. I'm a Job. I was just created to suffer. Well, I'm like, well, wait, what do you think the point of the book of Job is? There's mysteries and there's a cruel side to God that we just don't understand. I'm like, wait, where did you get that? Like, well, read the book of Job. Well, how about you read the whole Bible? Because according to the whole Bible, you're supposed to walk out of the book of Job saying, oh, God is full of compassion and mercy. If you read the book of Job and you are not walking out like, God, you are full of compassion and mercy, then you read the Bible wrong. And you've interpreted the book of Job wrong. Because if you still think God is your enemy, you, see, see, you don't unconditionally love and serve someone that's cruel. You only unconditionally serve someone that's beautiful and full of compassion and mercy. Compassivo, misericordioso, I think is the word. That's the, that's the kind of person that you're going to give all. See, when you're, when you're reading this, when you're reading this book, I keep on hearing, even Job's friends, they're going to point to Job's work. They're going to talk about themselves. Job will say, I'm not inferior to you guys. He, gets, he falls for it. They're like, I'm not inferior to you. Well, I'm not inferior to you. Has your, is your piety? And they talk about his piety. I was just over in Fort Lauderdale. There's what's called the Fort Lauderdale question, which is the, one of the greater questions. Um, evangelism explosion started in Fort Lauderdale, and there, there was an opening line they would ask when they do this, which was, if you were to die, do you know where you would go? By the way, it's a great question. In fact, I want to ask all of you. If you were to die right now, do you know where you would go when you died? Because the idea is, if, if you don't know, you, you, you can know. Well, one of, the, one of the guys that was kind of throwing this out there, he said, hey, I just want you to imagine it's, the, it's, it's judgment day. And, and of course, Jesus, if you remember, he gets crucified. He's got a thief on one side. He's got a thief on the other side. And, and, they, and they both start off cursing Jesus. But one of them changes. And before it happens, he looks at Jesus and he sees something in Jesus, and I want to get clear, he knows he's not getting off the cross. He knows Jesus is of no use to him. But he sees something not useful, but beautiful in Jesus. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which I've heard people say, like, oh, that's just like jailhouse religion. It's at the last second. Oh, give me a break, man. That's faith. For you to be looking at a man that's mangled, beaten, dying, brutalized, and an, he looks like an utter failure. For you to get faith from that, I'm telling you, this man saw something miraculous. 
He says, Lord, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And this one guy just described it like, imagine this thief from the cross showing up before the gates of God. And there's like, you know, you got like an angel or you got Peter standing there and he shows up and the angel's like, so what are you doing here? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, well, so why should I let you in? He's like, I, I don't know. He's like, okay, well, let's just do a little something here. What's your position on the Holy Scriptures? He's like, I have no idea. What's your position on eternal security? He's like, I, I, I have no idea. What's your position on, you know, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit? He's like, I, I, I don't have any idea. And he, and he finally maybe puts all the stuff down and says, okay, so... So, so why, what are you doing here? And he looks back at the angel and he's like, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. The guy on the middle cross. If you die, where are you going to go? Because if your answer is anything in the first person, because I... Because the book of Job is about to be a bunch of first-person talk. I am good, and I have been pious, and I know what I'm talking about, and I'm not as stupid as you. It's, that's, and, and even in, in circles now, I'm not, as, I'm not as bad as Republicans. I'm not as bad as Democrats. I'm not as bad as Libertarians. I'm not as bad as... If, if the basis of your standing is anything in the first person, it is insufficient. The only answer is because he is good because he is merciful because he went up on a cross because he has shown the way because he is the truth because he is the life because he is the way to get to God because he is a healer because he is full of compassion and mercy it's all him you get to the end of the book of Job when God finally speaks and Job puts his hand on his mouth he says God I repent as soon as Job repents God now steps in heals Job puts his hand on him and vindicates Job I'm telling you there is nothing like repentance there is nothing like repentance but maybe that's you and maybe you need to do that today you know what's what's holding you back from from getting to that place let me give you a couple quotes and then we're going to call this a day I was I was listening to uh, Bill Johnson who's uh, preaches at a church kind of a faith preacher and, and he takes shade for different things but uh, I went to his, his church one time and when I did uh, there was the first person I met was a a researcher from University of Southern California because there was a lot of reports of healing that had happened and she wanted to research this and sure enough I said well what's happened she's like well I gotta tell you it's there's everyone that thinks you're getting healed is not getting healed but there's way more healings than that I can possibly explain naturally like there's absolutely miracles that are happening and uh, this is just a secular researcher so understandably it was interesting when his wife got cancer and a few months ago she died this is what he said the Sunday after his wife died. The backslider in heart will always judge God by what he didn't do. But those who run with tenderness for who he is will always define him by what he has said, what he has promised, and what he has done. I've seen too much of his kindness to think that he is anything other than absolutely good. What I have found is that there are measures of his presence that you can only find in the valley of the shadow of death. He's not a vending machine. I don't get to put a quarter in and get out what I want. It's a relational journey. And I've experienced his kindness, his miracles at a level I could never earn or deserve. 
I don't have the right to reevaluate what he's like because I've experienced loss. It doesn't work that way. It's really interesting to me because the, the shade that Bill Johnson has often taken has been these faith preachers and the people that believe in healing, they don't prepare people to suffer. And yet, when I heard his words, I was like, man, this, this, this guy's serving God because he thinks God's beautiful. It almost sounds contradictory to honor him as healer when you've just lost somebody that you love through a disease, but it's not fake. It's not hype. This is who he is. Blessed are those who mourn. And I want to say this to some of you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning will either take you to the comforter, the presence of the Holy Spirit, or it's going to harden your heart and take you to a place of unbelief. Our dream in this church is that when we grieve, we grieve with hope by going to the comforter himself. That when God, when it feels like he's doing us wrong, I don't go gossip about him to all my homies. I go straight to him and I say, Jesus, where are you? And he's so faithful. How do you apply this book of Job? Here's the application, really. Don't read the book of Job without the cross. Because it's at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light where the burden of all the misinterpretations and all my sins and all my shame gets rolled away. Don't read your suffering without the cross because the cross is where you see the only innocent one ever who suffered utterly. I was really blown away a couple weeks ago when I had read in February of 1921 there was at Kane Hospital a doctor that was performing an appendectomy. In many ways, this appendectomy was just like a lot of other appendectomies, removing someone's appendix, except there was two things that were different. The doctor was Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane, and in his 37 years, he had performed almost 4,000 appendectomies. So it was pretty uneventful except for two things. The first was the use of local anesthesia. He had been a a crusader for local anesthesia, like just do local, not in your whole body. But it was really kind of, it was a new thing, and, and it was scary, and so it was really hard to find volunteers to do it, but they finally got a volunteer that was willing to try it out. On Tuesday morning, the historic operation occurs. The patient was prepped, wheeled into the OR, local anesthetic applied, and just like he'd done thousands of times, he dissects the tissue, locates the appendix, skillfully excised, performed the surgery. During the procedure, the patient complained of only minor discomfort. The volunteer was taken to post-op and recovery took only two days. Everything went very well. Two things made the surgery unique. The first was the use of the local anesthetic, like I told you. The second was the identity of the volunteer, which was Dr. Kane himself. The message of the gospel is that you and I are going to have times when we do not get it, and the problem of pain is tormenting us. But this is the gospel. The doctor became a patient so that the patients would know you can trust the doctor. When I am tormented by the problem of pain, and I do know the doctrine of sovereignty, and I've got to have that. These eyes need to look in his eyes and remember that the doctor 
became a patient upon a cross so that the sinners down here at the foot of the cross would know that we can trust the doctor. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid on him and by his stripes were healed. He was not even recognizable. There was no beauty in him that we should behold him. He didn't look like the guy on Chosen that said, oh, he just looks so, what a handsome actor Jesus must have been. He, he was to, to the look, I mean, oh, there was no beauty that we should desire him. But the doctor became a patient so the patients could know forever you can trust the doctor. I do not want to make light of anybody's pain today. But I am here to, t- I have an assignment from God to tell you. God is good and Jesus proves it. God is love and Jesus proves it. And when you are faced with things that you do not understand, you must hold on to what you do understand. And what I do understand is this, God is good and his mercy endures forever. And if there's anyone that's here that you've not given him all of your life, maybe you've even been following him because he's useful. Today, I'm telling you, is there anyone as beautiful as Jesus? Is there anyone like Jesus? Has any doctor become the patient like Jesus? Is there any king that would give up his throne to save the subjects and make them his own? Is there anyone that's got love like he does? There's nobody. There's no one like the Lord. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one that does what he does. There's no one that redeems like he does. There's no one that can go down and somehow by the time it's all, by the time this book is over, we're going to find he's going to be restored. The book of Job is supposed to make you say what I'm ending this sermon saying. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy and Jesus proves it. Jesus proves it. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to close with a song, but if our prayer team could come up to the front. If you're here and you could use prayer today, we would just love to pray with you. If, if prayer would be helpful. But if you're online, or if you're here in person, and Jesus is not your king and your Lord and your master and your redeemer and your forgiver and your everything, I want him to be today. If you're in here right now and you'd say, hey, Mike, I don't think I'm following Jesus. I don't think he's my Lord. I don't think he's my king, but I want him to be. If that's you, I'm just going to count to three. And when I say three, just shoot your hand up in the air. And if you're online right there, you can even shoot your hand up in the air right there in the room that you're in right now. But if you're here right now and you'd say, Mike, I am not following Jesus, but I believe what you're saying is true. I'm telling you, he died for you. He rose from the dead. He is worth your all. If you've not yet surrendered your all to him and you want to do that today, this is called turning and repenting and believing. If you want to do that, I want you to shoot your hand up on three. One, if that is you, get ready. This is your time. Two, three. Put your hand up if that's you. Yep. Who else? Good. Yeah. Anybody else? Beautiful. Beautiful. If you're online right there, you can just put your hand, leave it up for like five seconds. You can just leave it there. Because I don't know who is doing what online right now. Everyone that just raised your hand, I want you to pray something with me. We're going to do a prayer of covenant and repentance right now. Everybody in the house can pray it. Everyone online can pray this with me. But especially if you raise your hand, make sure you say this out loud. You don't have to scream it, but use your words, use your lips. Because every mouth, every tongue needs to confess this. Would you say this? Say, dear God, you are good. You're perfect. You are holy. You only do what is right. But I need you to be my Lord. Jesus, I call you my Lord. I call you my leader and forgiver. I turn to you with all of my heart. Forgive me. 
I pledge my heart to you. I give my body to you. And I receive your life. I believe you raised from the dead. And you are alive right now. 